Well, let's start off talking a little bit about your background. I know that you've had a varied background, more than just transportation. Tell me about what you've done. Absolutely, Bernie, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I started out uh, as a lawyer. Uh, that's my background, and that's my training. I went to Georgetown Law School, and when I came out of school, I started at a firm in Washington, D.C. Uh, as a litigation associate and had an opportunity, because I'd been at the firm as a clerk, uh, to have my own clients and get into court, you know, kind of a landlord-tenant and some uh, hearings, claims, things, way down in the basement of the district building. But it exposed me to real-world lawyering uh, at an early part of my career. So I kind of looked at it and said, you know, gee, if this is something I want to do, I need to go to a place where they really uh, have a trial practice. So I went to the Justice Department in the Civil Rights Division in the Housing and Civil Enforcement section. And I worked there uh, for a few years when I had an opportunity uh, through one of the partners at the firm to meet Vernon Jordan, who asked if I'd be interested in uh, joining uh, a corporation in Danbury, Connecticut. So that's when I became a corporate lawyer and joined uh, Union Carbide. Uh, I stayed at Carbide for almost eight years, and then it got sold to Dow Corporation. And then, rather than come to the beautiful uh, city of Midland, Michigan, uh, I joined Wyeth Pharmaceuticals as their director of litigation uh, outside of Philadelphia. And uh, from Wyeth, I moved on to a company called Phelps Dodge Corporation, which was the biggest uh, publicly held in the U.S. Uh, copper and gold mining company. And I was with... Um, uh, Phelps Dodge, which became Freeport McMoran, for just about six years when I got the call that there was an opportunity to come back to Washington uh, to help uh, President Obama move uh, the administration in the country forward, and the opportunity was at the Department of Transportation. So I joined what was then known as the Research and uh, Innovative Technology Administration, now known as the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology, uh, but I joined RITA. Uh, as chief counsel. Uh, and after a year being chief counsel, I was asked to take over as deputy administrator. Uh, took over as deputy administrator and shortly thereafter took over as administrator. Uh, and then the organization got elevated by Congress into the office of the secretary, thus becoming that office of the assistant secretary for research and technology. And I was asked to continue on as the assistant secretary. So I, I've had uh, four jobs in the same organization at DOT, but, uh, you know, we are the excitement part of the department. We look at innovation. We look at um, uh, technology and technological advancement. We look at research and technology. We have uh, parts of our organization that work on GPS, so we're in outer space. So it really is a fascinating place to be, and I've been extraordinarily fortunate to work with the dedicated civil servants that really do the hard work of keeping America moving forward. Since you didn't have a chance, in a sense, to grow up in the world of transportation and really got exposed to it once you joined USDOT, what are some of the surprises that you've had during your career and your exposure to transportation? You know, that's a great question. Um, when I first heard about um, the opportunity and when I considered transportation and what does it mean, I didn't have a sense of it as a connected system. You know, I kind of naively said, well, okay, transportation. I've driven a car and I ride a motorcycle and I've been on a plane and been on a boat and a train. I said, okay, I get it. Um, but it wasn't until I got to the department and first saw how interrelated everything is. You know, so if you look at how freight moves uh, across the country, it starts out perhaps as a marine exercise coming into a place like Long Beach. 
uh, then needs to have uh, intramodal movement either to rail uh, at railheads at the at the um, dock or at the port or maybe into trucking and then trucks across the interstate network you know where it's interacting with light vehicles and road stops and restways uh, and then you have smaller vehicles that that deliver to the last mile, right? And then there's also air freight. And, and so the movement of people and goods across the country as a system was something that I was not uh, aware of uh, or didn't have a, a cognizant thought about. And I became fascinated by it once I, once I became part of the team because it really is the lifeblood of this country. You know, the safe and efficient movement of people and goods is what keeps the U.S. as the preeminent uh, economic driver worldwide. You've been here at this conference. It's a, a three-day conference, basically, that's going to be going on. The opportunity to speak to the groups uh, and to individuals as well. What's the message that you're trying to get across during your time here in Pittsburgh? You know, I have the benefit of, of two things, getting to be kind of cheerleader, number one, or number three, if you consider our secretary and our deputy secretary, or number four, if you consider the president. Or five, we had an vice president. So anyway, I'm one of the cheerleaders uh, for technological advancement and for the promise that connected vehicle technologies bring in reducing that 32,719 roadway fatality number, that 2 million crash per annum, 2 million plus crash per annum, to get those out of our system and to get those out of our thinking as just background numbers. You know, we're at historic lows with respect to crashes and fatalities. But, you know, I would submit that's an unacceptably high toll on our society. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, human loss, when you look at families impacted, when you look at the drain on the economy and, and some of the uh, health-related costs and, and, and uh, personal uh, property-related costs associated with that. So th that's a long way of saying uh, the safety benefits are, are critical, and I get to be one of the cheerleaders uh, about that. But also, I've always been, you know, kind of a, a someone who's very interested in technology and, um, you know, kind of a technophile, if you will. I don't have a technical background, but I was one of those kids. My mother said I was a weird kid. I had a popular science uh, subscription at the age of six. So I've always been fascinated by these kinds of uh, areas of, of scientific endeavor and engineering inquiry. So I get to delve a little deeper than perhaps your average lawyer would in some of the, the technical underpinnings of this technology, of GPS, of, of the other things that we do uh, at the Department of Transportation. So it's just a great way for me uh, to, to get to be part of this community as hopefully a, a respected member and participant, but also as a prime cheerleader. When it comes to transportation technology, obviously connected vehicles, autonomous vehicles have been getting and capturing the attention of the general public as well as the general media. But there are other ways technology is being used in other modes of transportation, whether it's transit, marine, railroads, those types of things. What are some of the things that are going on there? Are they being overshadowed, do you think, at all because of that focus on autonomous and connected vehicles? Sometimes it gets to be episodic. Um, so connected and automated vehicles are what have captured uh, the fancy of the American public, largely because of what uh, forward-thinking organizations like Carnegie Mellon University here in Pittsburgh, that's one of the leaders in developing automated technology uh, because of the publicity Google has been able to garner and, and Uber now looking at that space and Apple. So it's an interesting 
transition point where we're seeing a melding of Silicon Valley thinking, uh, bringing outside-the-box solutions to transportation problems and issues and challenges. So for those reasons, uh, those areas get a lot of optics. But then sometimes you have incidents that um, cause uh, stakeholders and others to question where other technologies are, like with the Amtrak crash, wondering about positive train control and, and how is that moving along its timeline and whether or not that could have addressed that horrific uh, crash outside of Philadelphia. You know, by the same instance, you have the Malaysian Airline 370 disappearance, questioning whether or not uh, next-gen technologies that the FAA is working on, um, along with others internationally. Um, so there are a lot of technologies that are underway uh, at the department, uh, but certainly some get more press ink and coverage than others because of the, the players involved. But I would say technology writ large is really transforming the way transportation is carried out uh, across all disciplines and across all of the operating administrations. And something certainly that's getting a lot of attention in Washington and because of that in the various states is the reauthorization and the process of what's going on with reauthorization. As far as technology is concerned and what you're involved with within USDOT, how does this whole process affect you? Transportation funding is the key. It's the answer. It's the core. The problem is um, we've fallen into a habit or a culture of short-term funding, two-year bills, uh, continuing resolutions, stopgap measures, and that affects the enterprise across the board, not just from a technology perspective, but, um, you know, technology is, is everything from better materials to fill potholes, uh, better ways to test bridge integrity uh, to some of the, uh, you know, sci-fi stuff that we're talking about with unmanned aerial devices and, and um, self-driving vehicles. Um, so, so what does inadequate or short-term funding do to that time frame? Uh, from an R&D perspective, uh, my organization, uh, the, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology, manages the University of the Transportation Centers Program, UTC program. Um, so the UTCs are at uh, accredited universities across the country that have uh, undergrad through PhD programming in engineering disciplines. Uh, so they are our forward-thinking, exploratory research partners. So if you're a UTC director and you're trying to develop a program to attract students who, by definition, are in a curriculum that needs three to four or four-plus years of, of um, commitment to, to get that degree, how do you attract them when you have two years' worth of funding? Right? So it makes it difficult for the UTCs to adequately plan uh, for programming that would be attractive to students that need longer-term commitments. And what does that mean for uh, uh, you know, a state DOT that is looking at, well, gee, we need to replace a bridge or we need to look at uh, some of the issues from a corrosion perspective or a bridge scour perspective, and we're going to need several years of, of time to figure out what the project is. We need the engineers at the front end to identify the problem. We need planners, et cetera. We need the environmental process. And then we need to start working with construction crews to put this project into place. That kind of level of effort is not something that can be accomplished in a two-year, uh, two-month you know, uh, planning phase with uh, stopgap and patchwork dollars. So 
the administration is extraordinarily uh, pleased that the Grow America Act, uh, at its core, has has turned the it's been an intellectual reset on how do you fund transportation infrastructure. So it's a, a proposed six-year funding bill. Uh, it's not too long ago where six-year funding and, and you know four to six-year funding was the norm coming out of Capitol Hill. We've gotten away from that for way too many years. We need to get back to looking at transportation as a core asset that, again, guarantees the vitality of this nation. And at least I'm happy to see that some of the other funding discussions that I'm hearing about on the Hill are looking at it as a long-term basis. Um, does it help that we got yet another short-term gap until July? No, but if it means that the stakeholders and, and the uh, authorizers, et cetera, are going to take more time to figure out how to get us to a long-term solution, then it's all for the good. Greg, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Bernie.